back to the EDM Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Matler, and this is a show where I interview producers, artists, and industry experts. In this interview, I talk to Jonathan Stein. He's a producer, beat maker, studio owner, and he's well known among Ableton users for his use of the Ableton Push. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, look him up on YouTube and you'll see what I mean. Amazing stuff. But beyond that, he's someone who's extremely good at explaining his music production process, which I found out during this interview. A lot of producers are not. Uh, they make good music, but they don't know how to articulate why it's good or or how they approach everything. But Jonathan does do this, which is what makes this particular interview so fascinating. So what do we talk about? We talk about his path into music production, uh, his time spent playing traditional instruments and has been exposed to Ableton Live for the first time and what that was like. We talk about Candid Music Group, which is a studio that he runs, and we also talk about Team Supreme. Uh, we talk about the importance of quantity over quality, and this is something I've been recommending for years, so it's nice to have someone else uh, push it as well. But my favorite part of the interview is when we talk about the emotional or sensory underpinnings of music and how understanding them as a producer can help you make more interesting music. This is the best part of the interview, uh, kind of changed my perspective on everything. So make sure that you listen to the end where we talk about that. It's a really fun interview. I hope you enjoy it. And if you do, I'd love if you could leave a rating and review. Head on over to edmprod.com forward slash iTunes and do so. That is edmprod.com forward slash iTunes. Without further ado, here is Jonathan Stein. Welcome back to the EDM podcast today. I'm joined by Jonathan Stein. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, you nailed it. Perfect. Yes. Now, you've got a new release out today called Driving. Tell us more about that and, and the production process behind it. Yes, sir. So this new track, Driving, featuring some buddies of mine from London called Age of Luna. Three super dope vocalists, Butch, hmm. Yote, and Daniela. This is a track that I started in Brooklyn maybe a year or more ago. And it started with just a, a simple beat, this kind of schlumpy halftime thing with some chords on it, some roads. And then I wrote a little hook too. And originally the song was just me singing that hook like six or seven times in a row with uh, some production variations and this big build at the end. And then I finally heard about these guys, hooked up with them, and they ended up writing some super dope verses on it. And I ended up weaving in their verses and hooks with my verses and hooks. And the end result is this cool trade-off thing, this whole, this whole ride, this whole drive. You're going to like it. Love it. I want to dive quickly into your workflow in general. Do, do most of your songs start that way with just a beat or an idea or does it change every time? Uh, I've been trying to write in different ways now, but it always starts in kind of unexpected ways. More often it's you with 15 or 20 minutes when you're 
sitting at like a coffee shop waiting for somebody or making something on a plane flight than you sitting down in your fancy setup studio saying to yourself, I'm going to make a song today. And I don't know why that is, but there's something nice about the casuality and lack of self-pressure of those things mm. right there that lets you make something simpler and kind of just more lighthearted, whimsical and, and quicker, really. The song is kind of there in the first 10, 15 minutes a lot of the times in terms of the, the feel, you know, the vibe, if you will. And then uh, from there, there's the many, many hours that it takes to finesse it and, and touch it up and make sure all the flows and transitions are nice. And of course, the detail work of the, the lyrics. But a lot of times, the 90% of the song comes in the first 20 minutes. And that could be the beat side and the even the lyric side. I can definitely say the times where... I've been producing at a coffee shop or just like just chilling out and jamming. That's where the best songs have come from. Yeah. Not when I've just sat down and tried to force, you know, try to force it out. Yeah. I guess the challenge is how do you keep that state of mind when you're, you have to be in those situations. You know, a lot of times when you're in a session with somebody else and you gotta, Mm. you gotta have that turned on on the spot. So how do you keep that coffee shop mind when you're in that type of setting? How do you do it? How do you do it? Ooh, I guess (laughs) it depends depends on who you're in the room with. You know, a lot of the time sessions start with, you know, kind of like me meeting you today, Sam. Sessions start with just some talking, some nonsense, really. Mm. So uh, if that nonsense is off to a good start and turns out you're just two loose people who, despite it all, still are just all about chilling, enjoying having a good time, then you're probably in a, in a good place to get your, your coffee shop chill day on and actually hopefully still make some good music. What else for you as a producer aids creativity? You've talked about kind of the lightheartedness, uh, but is there anything else that helps you be creative when you're making music? Yeah. And once again, it's kind of like a broad philosophical thing as opposed to musical technical things Mm. it's the idea it's getting rid of the pressure of every time you sit down to play that one you have to or will make something better than the last thing you made and that pressure just saying it it sounds really absurd because if that was true then you would just be building up to this impossible wall of Mm. self-defeat but uh two it's really easy to think that way because you you just have this expectation every time you have to be innovative, you have to push yourself. And that actually ends up intimidating yourself and crumbling your fear. Whereas if you could find a way to let go of that, and every time you go into a musical or any type of creative setting, have no expectation of the quality being better than what you've done before, or even being good at all, if you are not afraid to make a bad song, then you will actually enjoy it much more and be willing to make the mistakes that it takes to accidentally stumble upon your next innovations. Because 
90% of the time, maybe all the time, the things that are most innovative to yourself that surprise you the most creatively are accidents. And in order to let yourself make those accidents, you have to be willing to make a bad song. Mm, that's great advice. Is it hard though? I mean, as a, dare I say, like successful producer, someone who's doing it full time, is it hard to have that mindset when so much is riding off your ability to make music? Hell yes, it is. And as I was just telling you that last bit, it's basically me giving me that same advice to remind me. Right. Yes, I'm saying that to you and I'm trying to say it to myself, but it is still so, so, so hard to have that mindset when you're dealing with the paradox of your job actually being to not make those mistakes and have a mm. consistent standard every time. Yes, man, it is hard. And once again, it's about knowing when times you have to be a quote, quote, professional professional producer and deliver the goods to the standard that people expect of you at the expense of some of the, uh, the just the pure, wild, free creativity. And other times, going back to what we were talking about, when you're with the right people in the right setting, and this is always ideal, and you should always strive to get to this point as much as possible when you could let that all go and and just wander and, and be a kid with a musical instrument. I want to come back to this, but uh, I also want to hear about your background. What got you into music initially and what has the journey looked like so far to get to where you are today? All right. So when I was, let's see, 12 years old, starting middle school, I started playing the clarinet, mm. playing school band, and I remember getting a bit into that. And I remember a year later, I was really, really into uh, alternative rock at the time. My favorite band, and still one of my favorite bands, was Linkin Park. And oh, classic. Just, right? Yeah. 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 So they had just come out with uh, Hybrid Theory, mm. which... Still is awesome and was mind blown at the time. This kind oh, of yeah. you know, really, really clean, polished, but big and thick metally sound. And then there was the rapping and then there was the scratchy electronic -y stuff. It was, it was cool. I never heard of them like that. And 12 years old is pretty impressionable age. So mm. I love their music. And I remember I did a, a whole, whole album with my dad. He helped me make this. We had some recording set up at our house. My dad's a musician too. Right. That definitely right. Is a role. So he helped me record a whole album of me playing Linkin Park songs on clarinet. And that was the first record I ever made. So that's one for the, 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 uh, the super fans <laughs> right there. But a little bit after that, I think in eighth grade, four, age 14, I had two, two buddies at school. They were really, really cool, and I wanted to start hanging out with them more. And they both played guitar and drums. So I thought I would pick up the bass so that I could play in a band with them and chill with them more. And also, I had, uh, let's see, I dislocated my finger so I couldn't play clarinet. I couldn't play baseball oh, no. anymore. That was my big thing at the time. I was all about baseball. So I picked up the bass and just started playing some simple stuff. I remember the first bass line I ever learned was Seven Nation Army. Yes. That, uh, you know which one I'm talking about? Yeah. Man. 
So that was great. You could play that with one finger on one string and you know, just slide it up and down. And from there, I remember I learned, obviously, those Linkin Park songs again on bass. I was learning a bunch of Incubus songs. I was learning a bunch of Bob Marley songs. Uh, this bass player named Marcus Miller, who was really amazing, he started off playing with Miles Davis in the late 80s when he was doing the weird electric stuff. Oh, wow. And does this really melodic, kind of slappy, twangy thing. He's kind of a very unique bass, electric bass virtuoso. So I remember listening to his albums and just trying to learn them note by note and getting really deep into, into that instrument. That was the first instrument that really, really grabbed me and kept my focus so extremely. Electric bass. Mm. So a little bit later, going in trans transitioning into high school i wanted to be in that high school jazz band because that was the what i thought was the cool kid thing to do at the time although that's super 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 relative and in order to be in that group you had to play double bass acoustic bass the big cello thing mm. my parents got me a cheap one of those and i started learning that and once again i fell in love with it and just kept going further in with that and a little bit later i started playing in some groups that were based out of really, really nice schools, music schools, one in Berkeley, close to where I grew up in Oakland, called the Jazz School, which now is an accredited conservatory, but at the time was just offering some classes. And that was the first time I interacted with really, really serious high-level musicians, you know, ones that were a few years older than me that had done a lot of training and had been practicing for a long time and kind of were the first dudes to seriously kick my ass and make me realize, oh, wow, I'm just kind of scratching the surface here. There is levels to go and practicing to be done. So that really inspired me to take it to the next level where, you know, you're kind of going from being a kid doing kid stuff and next thing you know, you're wanting to practice three, four, five hours a day. And mm. you know, your friends are saying, hey, you want to come get some tacos with me right now? And I would say, no, nah, I got to practice, which, uh, yeah, I'm happy I did. That's where I, that's kind of what put me at where I'm at now. Mm. That was the, the first kind of big awakening there. And then a little bit later, college years, I... Just got curious and wanted to try some other stuff. So I applied for classical bass at a couple spots. Ended up getting into Manhattan School of Music in New York. So I went over there and New York was a big, big change. Took me a few years to even get to like the city because it's so intense and mm. harsh. And, but it's crazy. It's crazy stimulating. And I ended up going through school there. And in those four years going to school there, I transitioned from being so sure and confident about wanting to be an orchestral musician, which thinking back now is just insane because it's possibly, it's definitely the most rigid, structured, hierarchical, creativity limited musical Bronco. profession that there is right now. So I'm so, so glad I moved away from that. 
but I, during school, I went from being really into that to, and this is probably the big one that gets us to what we should be talking about. My junior year, somebody at school giving me a cracked copy of Ableton 10. No, no, Ableton 8. There we go. And that's basically changing my life and my perception of music as a whole. From the vantage point of a single musical instrument, one like the double bass or the electric bass or the piano, which I had been playing this whole time, uh, to thinking about music from the perspective of somebody listening or watching from far away, and now all of a sudden you're paying attention to all of the elements, the top end, the bottom end, the rhythmic components, the melodic, the melody, the harmony, the the texture, the sound, the frequency, thinking of music beyond even just 12 notes and starting to think of it as uh, every the frequency range, you know, 10 hertz to 22,000 hertz. It was a big, big ear opener for me. And from there, I was still in school. I finished that up. I did what I had to do. Although my mind and love was gradually wandering into Ableton. I bought some nice speakers. I bought some other essentials, maybe an interface, a microphone. Started setting up a studio at my apartment, and this was Harlem at the time. And I even experimented with some some uh, attempts to record live bands. So I got this big interface that maybe had eight or ten inputs. Mm. Started recording drums, keys, horns, and did that for a lot of the musicians at school for a good while making some bread and really just once again learning more about production and this time through the, the perspective of combining live instruments, even things like drums with electronic elements. Kept doing that. Moved to Brooklyn after I graduated. And I moved to Brooklyn with a good, good buddy of mine named Ivan Jackson, who was half of Brass Tracks. Really, oh, really dope group. Trumpet, drums, production. Check him out. And uh, me and him, we moved down there. And we had to make some bread. We were both getting deep into production. We both had jazz and music backgrounds from MSM and beyond. And so we were trying to figure out how to put all that to use in a new, brand new way that one would be beneficial to the music community around us and allow us to pay rent basically. So we came up with this idea to have this recording studio thing, which I'd already been experimenting with when I lived in Harlem. And we found this, this amazing duplexy apartment with this whole basement that was perfect for that. So we started building and uh, we hit an Indiegogo. We raised like $11,000, which blows my mind now. I have no idea how we pulled that off. And we used that money to buy a bunch of musical equipment, like a Rhodes, a whole bunch of microphones, and a bunch of very nice cameras and photography equipment. And we set up this production company called Candid Music Group. And it was meant to be a one-stop shop for anything production-wise, photography, recording, production. So in the beginning, we were hustling where people, groups would come in to do a day of recording. And then we would film the recording and put up the video with the audio and 
you know, there'd be photos involved and even logo design. And, and me and Ivan hustled with this company for the next three, four, five years in Brooklyn, all the while getting more into production and beat making. And at this time, I was also just hooking up with a group called Team Supreme. So Team Supreme, another another side side tangent here. When I was in high school, I went to a like a summer camp out in the woods with a kid, a buddy of mine now, named Mike Parvizi. And we didn't see each other for years and years and years. And years later, he sees that I had just released this uh, this two two volume album on Bandcamp, and this was 2010. And I basically went from just starting to mess around with Ableton and doing that for like a year to out of nowhere dropping 24 songs on Bandcamp, which is crazy. It's like that's more songs than I would release in a year now. That's how badass I was at the time. So I put these songs out. And Mike saw this on Facebook and he listened to them and he liked them. And he called me up out of nowhere and said, yo, I love bootleg. That was the name of the thing I dropped. Me and some buddies in LA, we're, we're doing this, this, uh, this game, this experiment right now where uh, one of us sends out some samples and you've got, originally, I think you had an hour or a day or something, but they changed it to a week. You've got a week to make a one-minute one beat with these samples and this tempo, and then you send it to us, and we put it all into a cipher up on YouTube just for fun. And I said, hell yeah, that sounds fun. So I made the beat. He sent me the samples. I made the beat, sent it to them, and they put it up on the cipher, and that was Team Supreme. This is the beginnings of Team Supreme. And that was Team Supreme Volume 5. It was their fifth week of existence. And at the time, it was me, it was uh, Mike Parvizi, it was Preston James, who both became Penthouse Penthouse a little bit later. It was Great Dane, Dot, Elos, Goodnight Cody, maybe TK Kayambe. And this continued for maybe the next year or two, where we actually did a beat cipher every week, maybe for the first hundred weeks so that's almost two years and in that time the following for that group this collective really really snowballed and it also became this very very helpful but also competitive challenger game where every week you wanted to make the the dopest beat in the cypher so you had to step up your creativity game. You had to step up your workflow game because you had limited mm-hmm. time. And it was this nice, friendly competition that really got everyone's skills up for sure. And now Team Supreme has kind of bubbled into something kind of bigger than just the collective. It's much more of a communal thing with ciphers happening less often, but with a lot, a lot of participants. I mean, now we'll get 200 submissions for each cipher from, from everybody. It's become like a much more open, invitational type thing. But at the time, it was basically just the, the handful of producers in it 
and it was a super, super good production exercise. So I used Team Supreme, we all did, to build up our own reputations and following. And I started putting out my own music out on SoundCloud. And I even took the Team Supreme uh, mindset of quantity over quality, just releasing a lot, a lot of music. One, to get your own skills up and one to kind of get your snowball going in, in the, the public. And I think for a couple of years, I released a song on SoundCloud every two weeks. Hmm. And through that, built up a lot of, uh, a lot of love gradually. And a little bit later after that, and that almost catches us up to today, I was doing a show in LA for Team Supreme. And uh, at the time, Push One had just come out. I remember seeing a, like a, a video for it. And I was just kind of like laughing at it, thinking like, you know, this will never, this will never replace the piano. Dumb. <laughs> So that was my first impression of it, honestly, before touching it, that it was just going to be another button pushy type thing. But I ended up going to LA to do a show with Team Supreme, which were always super fun. And one of these pushes was lying around at the place I was staying. I was staying at Kenny Siegel's house because Ableton already was keeping an eye out on Team Supreme and gave us a couple of these things to try out. So I gave this thing a try. And I realized that, oh my God, this is laid out exactly like a bass, bass, which I'd been playing for a long time. It was my main instrument. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, I was able to just put my hands down on this thing and kind of know what was going on pretty intuitively. So I decided to play this thing at the show that night. And the Ableton rep that gave these pushes to Team Supreme was there. His name was Cole. He's a good buddy of mine. He saw me play this thing, came to me after the show, said, yo, that was awesome. Really brave of you to do that. I would like to send you one of these pushes, see what you think. So he sent me a push. Tried it out for maybe six, half a year. I think as soon as I got that thing, I just practiced it nonstop every day, you know, all day, four or five hours, and just made beats on it and, and got to know every part of it. And after that, he let me keep it, and he invited me to go to Berlin to film the video for Push 2, which came out the day that Push 2 came out, maybe in 2014 or 15, I don't remember. And I went out there to do that video shoot, which was a super, super cool experience. Although in a way, it was not different from... What I was doing already, it was just me making a beat the way I was making beats at the time, but with like seven GoPros looking at me <laughs> and in this, in this super nice, you know, Airbnb, you know, boutique apartment that was way nicer than mine, of course. But other than that, it was totally my comfort zone, which was cool. And that video came out and it was a big old, big burst for me getting that kind of uh, attention from Ableton's platform and having their support like that. And that led to me being introduced to a lot of the people that have become my team now, such as my manager, Soraya, who is awesome and has helped push me to a lot of new levels here. And in these past few years, 
I have continued down that route, releasing lots of music and exploring new ways to make music, such as using my voice more, singing, even rapping. And now the next steps, I'm not even sure, but I think they're going to be cool. They might even involve some, some like dancing or something. I'm always exploring and trying and practicing new stuff. So I'll just tell you this, whatever's coming next is going to be good. By the way, do you know what's really annoying? Spending $30 on a sample pack and only finding 10 to 15 usable samples in it. I've spent hundreds if not thousands of dollars on sample packs over the years and I've run into this problem again and again. Sometimes you get a good sample pack and other times there's only a few sounds that you actually like. Splice Sounds solves this problem. You pay a small fee each month, starts at just $8 a few coffees and in return you get a bunch of credits. You can use these credits to download samples, loops, presets from popular artists and sample pack labels. Splice Sounds has an extremely helpful library so you can find the sound you want really quickly and the best thing about it is that you only need to download the samples you want. You can preview the sounds, you can favorite them or you can just download them straight away and have them show up in your DAW automatically. Now as an EDM product listener you can get your first month on Splice Sounds for free. Just head to splice.com forward slash edmprod dash create and enter the promo code edmprod when you sign up. Again, that is splice.com forward slash edmprod dash create hyphen dash symbol, not the actual word, promo code edmprod when you sign up. And you can find this website address and promo code in the show notes as well in case you forget. Awesome. So I've got a few follow-up questions for that. Uh, what were some of the challenges you faced building up Candid Music Group? I mean, you said you spent three, four, five years kind of building that. What were the challenges? The challenges were convincing people that we could deliver all of those different things at the top level, even though we were just kids straight out of music school mm-hmm. and everything we had was just this you know, this homemade DIY build it yourself thing at our apartment. And looking back, I don't know if we were really delivering on that level. I mean, we were just kids. We were uh, pretty damn confident and sure of ourselves, borderline too confident. (laughs) So even if we weren't delivering, we were selling it like we were, like like we were just, Mm -hmm. you know, experts, the man. And that probably honestly helped a lot. But even so, that was a, a big challenge, getting people to, to con- be convinced that we could deliver all those things without having a resume or any background in that. Because we were just transitioning from being instrumental musicians and kind of starting this from scratch. And also the, the really delivering all that stuff, like it was just a big, big promise. So mm. that would mean that when we would have somebody in that it would become a full full day thing where they would show up at 11 and we would record for six hours and you know even just the recording thing i remember one time recorded this uh this funk band that had 12 pieces so the challenges for me was realizing how hard it was actually to just set everything up 
for that many musicians, making sure every mic was ready to go, every mic was working, every mic was pointing in the right direction, you know, at the right proximity from the bass drum. Everybody had the right headphone volumes. I mean, that took hours in itself. And kind of was like a lesson learned for me, always making fun of studio engineers taking so long to do that in their really fancy studios to me mm-hmm. having to do that in our basement DIY setup. Oh, those were that's some of the, the technical challenges for sure. And then mm-hmm. after that, you know, having that be sunk with the video and yeah, we were, it was borderline too ambitious for where we were at with our skills at the time. Right, right. Now you mentioned uh, quantity over quality. You were putting up a song every two weeks in SoundCloud. Yes. I think, especially for newer producers nowadays, quantity should be the focus. Yes, Sam. Yes. Why do you think it's important though? I mean, I have my reasons, but man, like this is something I firmly believe in. Yes, me too. Me, me too. So the quality thing that ends up being this idealist's view of yourself or your art that you actually never end up reaching. So a lot of producers and artists, and I got to be careful with this too, because it happens to me too. And then I remind myself, yo, quantity over quality. Come on, bro. But a lot of people get stuck in this, oh, it's not good enough. I got to keep working at it. I got to keep getting better. I got to keep practicing before I put it out. And you tell yourself that thinking that in a month, you'll have the skills and you'll feel good enough about what you do to put it out. But really, this is a perpetual feeling that no matter how good you get and how much you learn about your craft, you will always have that same, oh, I'm not good enough. I, I got to keep practicing to get to that next level. So if you are truly focused on quality, then you might possibly cripple yourself into never, ever releasing music or showing yourself to the world. So true. And also another kind of funny thing, like a paradox to this, is this idealistic view of yourself, the perfect you, this obsession with perfection and and high quality. It's often stuff, it's something that's not even perceived by the people around you. And this is really paralleled by, you know, everybody's got their 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 fears and insecurities like you know oh my ears are too big my nose is too small you know everybody's got their versions of that kind of stuff and you obsess about these things and you just you know they 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 limit you and then you go out there in the world and nobody even sees or thinks of that or notices these things so it takes practice to remember that and let go of all of these self-conscious things and inhibitions and when you do it feels amazing and it's kind of the same thing with creating art when you get rid of your uh, obsession for perfection it's really really liberating one for the creative process makes it much more enjoyable and allows you to be way more prolific so on the Mm. the quantity side there's also tons of benefits there the internet is too massive and vast even for quality to stand out, even if you're making the best, most amazing music, unless you've got thousands of dollars behind it, like the major labels, it still doesn't mean it's going to rise above, so to speak. Whereas if you are 
going more from the mindset of just populating the internet with tons and tons and tons of material that is all going to have its own little life and trajectory on the internet and tumble into some playlist here or some person here is going to like that song and show it to their friends. And next thing you know, people are going to be connecting the dots between all these songs that you've made and draw it back to you. And it ends up also kind of being this, this uh, TV show effect. You know, as you build fans, like SoundCloud's a great example for this, you're going to get fans. They're going to get into what you do, your sound. And they're going to listen to that song and they're going to be like, oh, that was dope. I'm ready for more. And if you give them something new every week or two weeks, two weeks is a nice sweet spot. And it's kind of this TV show episode where they start to expect and know that you're going to drop something new again in two weeks and they'll be looking for it. They'll be ready for it. They'll be you know, waking up that day and looking on the stream for, for your new track and they will anticipate it and, and want more and more and more and it'll create this snowball where more and more people will be ready for your music. And finally, and most importantly, is the quantity over quality thing is a, just a really, really good exercise for you the artist, the creator, to get good at making music efficiently and not taking forever to make it, making it quickly, like making a song in a week or a couple days, two weeks. And it teaches you, you get to react to the feedback of your previous songs mm -hmm. and use that feedback to adjust with the new song. So really, not only do you get to release more music and get more fans, but you also get to practice making more music. And that is an awesome combo. Yeah. And like, to me, that's exactly why the best path to quality is quantity. Yeah. You know, like I've, I've seen producers who spent, spend six months on their first song. Yep. And then I see producers who spend like, who make one song a day. Yeah. You know, like, like Kanye West made, I just remember this quote or something. He made three beats every day for a whole summer. Nice. That's awesome. You know? Like that's what pushes you forward. And talking about being pushed forward, you mentioned your manager uh, pushed you to new levels. What, like in what ways? She got me really into working with other artists. Collaboration before was something I did mainly with uh, producers. She got me really into working with vocalists and all different types of vocalists, you know, ones that are way up on the hip hop thing, way over in the kind of the soul scene thing. And also the other side of that spectrum, ones that are doing basically pop or cool variations of pop or stuff that's so pop that they only do, they're, they're basically their expertise is doing commercial syncs. And I had never done that before. And I probably even had uh, resistance to doing that before because I saw it as something too, you know, conformy or something. Mm -hmm. And, but she just got me in the practice of doing that because obviously that's where the bread's at. Sure. And after, after doing that for a tiny bit, I realized that that was another kind of liberating thing to do because you put in those situations, immediately you accept that this is not going to be some, some uh, creative, mind-blowing push for yourself. And you get mm -hmm. to go with that and you get to just embrace the natural feel-good beauty of cliche as a, huh. as a whole. And it's actually taught me a lot about music making and informed my music, learning the, the super simple, just naturalistic qualities that make good pop songs, good pop songs. And it's let me use that, those techniques in my music. 
And the big word there is always just really just simplicity, the power of simplicity. Mm. I actually, like I find that so interesting because people love to rip on pop. Like, especially in the production community, it's like, oh, you make pop music, like uh, you're talentless. But I find it so hard. Like I think coming up with a good hook, a good melody uh, and tight arrangement that's simple enough so that an average listener, like an average consumer can understand it, you're interested enough so that they don't get bored. Like that is a very fine art. Ooh, yes, Sam. Yes, it is. I think that's so important what you said. Um, kind of in the same vein, uh, well, not really, but <laughs> in the Ableton video that came out with you making a track, mm. you said something interesting, which has stuck with me ever since I heard it. You start with the emotional and then work your way down to the musical. Yes. Explain that for the people who haven't seen the video. Yeah. So with art or anything, just the way we live and see the world, we're not, you know, you take a bite out of a, a really, really nice apple. I'll make that strawberry. I like strawberries better. And you're not thinking, hmm, this strawberry is, uh, you know, 50% acidic and, you know, has uh, <laughs> it's fructose in it or something. You're thinking, damn, this strawberry is really, really tasty and it's making my, my, me feel good, fulfilled, but it's perking me up. It kind of has this, this kind of stimulating, tangy, tart sweetness to it. Mm. And then if you were to, this is becoming a weirder analogy than I thought, but if you were to say, what if I were to remake this strawberry? How would I create that? I know that it's perky. I know that it's tangy. I know that it's kind of sweet and has this soft texture. And all of this adds up to me feeling good and sweet and stimulated. And how would I do that? So you always want to start with the, the sensory stuff, how, how something makes you feel. I mean, that's really, that's really what we're here on this earth that's what we're all doing, whether we think about it or not. We're feeling things, we're experiencing things. And the people that live the most fulfilled, happiest lives are the ones that are able to feel and experience the most, and even without even judgment or expectation of those feelings being good or bad, but are just mm. open to feeling it all. And that's something I try to do. If you start with that, with the feeling, and then... You work backwards from there and then start to involve the intellect. The intellect being the part of the brain or the brain that can compute and can use logic and can rationalize and quantify. And all of this is very, very important too. But I will always stand by it being less important than your ability to have sensation, your ability to feel with your five senses the sixth sense, maybe even being the intellect, the brain, but your ability to just, just feel it all, good, the good and bad. So if you start with that, and then you pass that over to the intellect and start to dissect how to create these feelings. And as an artist, we're going to try and reverse engineer a feeling, because when somebody else listens to the song, most likely, unless they're just as musical as you, they're not going to listen and say, oh, I love that. Uh, that saw wave bass line, that 
that bump at 40 hertz really hit the spot. And, <laughs> oh, I love 123 BPM in the key of all the stuff. Is just, it's just words to them. It's words that label for us, but for them, it's nonsense. For them, they're going to listen to the song and hopefully feel what you wanted them to feel, which let's say in this case, you wanted them to feel energized. You wanted them to want to dance to move their body. You wanted them to feel good, happy. So we have to reverse engineer this feeling, which means we have to understand both sides of that, the left brain, the right brain. We need to, one, have a good ability to feel those feelings ourselves. And that takes kind of a practice in itself. You have to mm. kind of create a, a space of open-mindedness and put yourself in experiences that allow you to feel this broad range of feelings and emotions and stimulations. And then you also have to, and this is where practicing and training and studying all of this stuff kind of becomes very important. You have to understand how these feelings are made and created. So let's talk about a few really, really obvious examples that are so obvious that we take them for granted, but we shouldn't. Ones like, say, why does a major scale or a major chord feel happy and a minor chord feel sad? Mm. Why does a slower rhythm feel more sleepy and relaxed and a faster rhythm feel more energized and, and uppy and stimulants stimulated? Or if there's ways to mix those two where you've got this halftime tempo that's very kind of relaxed and wavy and head bobby, but in the middle has all these faster subdivisions that still kind of keeps you perky and keeps the small movies jumping a little bit. Or chords that some... Some of the you know, richer chords, like ninth chords and you know, chords that stack all the way up to 11, inside them they have major chords and minor chords. So you could create these kind of very, not complicated, but realistically mixed emotions that have elements of, of joy and ecstasy and pleasure, but are also kind of conflicted and you know, somber, which is how how we live, how we think. You know, emotions are never black and white. It's always this big, complex, mixed old spectrum. What are some more examples of these uh, really obvious associations between sensory and music? We talked about major chords, minor chords, tempo, register. High frequencies, once again, uh, are very perky and stimulating and they could even uh, trigger things like uh, adrenaline and anxiety and if used in the right way kind of like an exciting fear you know the way the same reason that we would go see a horror film to experience mm -hmm. a certain amount of fear to kind of be stimulated and get our adrenaline going you could create that with frequencies you know higher mids higher frequencies you know metallic screechy stuff to kind of create what could be pleasing irritations or low bass frequencies, you know, frequencies that are so low that they actually physically massage you and vibrate you and might even arouse you and that kind of stuff stimulates a lot more physical, lovey-dovey, sexy type stuff. Mm. And these are the things that you understand through, through a lot of practice and a lot of experimentation and studying. But this is you using specific tools, specific technical tools. 
relative to your craft. You know, painters have the same ones, visual artists have the same ones. Everybody's, every craft has a version of these. But for me, I could speak most strongly about the ones I've learned through music. We are using specific tools to create broad, almost inexplicable emotions and sensations. And the goal is to reverse engineer that. So you always start with the feeling and then work backwards to how to do it. I think you just blew my mind. That is like the, one of the best explanations I've heard of not just the power of music, but how it relates to the listener and emotions. Hey. That's, man, that's profound. <laughs> Thank you, Sam. Uh, that's amazing. So let's say there's someone listening to this who, who listens to all that. They're like, cool. They get down an idea. It's a loop maybe. Um, it's sounding nice, but they really struggle to take it and turn it into a full song. Like, there's just something blocking them. What advice would you give to that producer? Hmm. Let's explore the options here. One, push through no matter how much resistance there would be, and that might be a frustrating ride, but it could lead to a breakthrough. Two would be to say, all right, so this isn't coming naturally. Maybe I just uh, backburn this or honestly just scrap it and make a new one and learn from what I just made. And that, that's something hard for me to do even. I never want to feel like I you know, wasted my time or wasted material. You even get a, a certain amount of attachment to everything you make, which is dangerous. I got to keep that in mind. But you always have to remember that every time that you're sitting in front of the DAW working, every beat that you make is practice. You're learning what works and what doesn't. And you're always, whether you're thinking about it or not, you're, you're keeping track of tricks that you just tried that you could use on all the tracks that you do from that day on and keep developing on. So honestly, if you're hitting some sort of wall and there's some sort of resistance, it's possible it means that you've reached some sort of dead end for whatever reason. And you might be better off just putting that one to the side for now. That could always change later. And starting something fresh. And ideally, the songs, my favorite songs that I've done myself or with other artists they don't have these points of resistance you know it doesn't mean that they're all the way all the way there in the beginning you know a lot of times they take a while and they're slow developments and they take strange left unexpected turns but you never feel this uh this kind of despair this dead endness mm. and when i do oftentimes i just let it go or a compromise there would be to just backtrack several steps. Salvage the part of the track that you do like, the strongest part, the part that maybe was probably what you started with, and just scrap the rest and take it in a new direction. I like that. It's great advice. Jonathan, I've got one more question and then we'll uh, wrap this up. In your SoundCloud bio, it says there's a difference between knowing the path and walking it. What does that mean? All right. So this is another way of saying there's a difference between talking and doing or even thinking and doing. Mm. So in my life back then and definitely now, 
uh, I've gone through a lot of changes down to my mindset all the way to the things I do and the things I do as an artist and functioning person. And they are never things that I could predict a year before or a month before or a week before. They are things that just happen and tumble, tumble into existence from the chaos of the world. And through this, through observing this, I've realized that no matter how strategic you are or how, how much you know who you are or what you do or you plan and think about what you're going to do, the only thing that matters is walking the path and following where it goes. You do not know where the path goes. You just know that you have to walk. And through walking, you just let anything and everything happen. Man, I love that. And also, fun fact, that quote is actually from the first Matrix movie. Morpheus huh. says it to Neo. True. Yes. I need to watch that movie again, man. It's been too long. Amazing movie. I think he says it to him after he s- rescues him from the Smiths and he like crashes this helicopter into this building. And, right, yeah. And yeah. he says, she told me, the Oracle told me that I wasn't the one. And Morpheus says there are difference, there's a difference between knowing the path and walking it. So no matter what people say who you are, what other people or yourself, all that matters is what you do. So just do. Keep doing. I love it. Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a great conversation. Uh, finally, where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you, check out your music, and so forth? You can find me anywhere, Jonathan Stein. So Twitter, Jonathan Stein, no spaces, and that's J-N-T-H-N-S-T-E-I-N. Same thing for Instagram, Facebook, and I also have a, uh, a website that will link you to all of these, jonathanstein.com. And I'm on Spotify, Apple Music, SoundCloud, you name it.